We are in a study looking at the book of Daniel and how Daniel lived within this godless society of Babylon and how Daniel thrived within that society. And, and I, when I was looking to do this series, I, I purposely did this series during this season of, of, of what we're going through as a country and, and how do we um, live within our society and our culture as followers of Jesus Christ. And I believe Daniel is such an example to us on how we live in a society that, 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 that seems so anti-God and, and, and against the th- values and the things that, that we hold true. And how do we live within that? How do we not only live, but how do we thrive? And Daniel did. And, and, and let me just give you a little background with Daniel. Daniel um, lived in Israel. Daniel was a God follower. And then through God's judgment, God used the country of Babylon to exile Israel to Babylon, and there's basically three waves of exile that happened, and Daniel was part of this first exile some 600 years before the birth of Christ. And so what Babylon did was they took Daniel because he was bright, he was handsome, he very intelligent, and they immersed him in their culture. Basically, Daniel was stripped of everything. He had to learn the occult, he, uh, he had his name changed to a, a, a pagan name, a pagan god. Um, he had to serve the, the evil kings. And everything was taken away from Daniel. And you would think Daniel would be discouraged. You'd think he would turn his back on God. But just the opposite happened. In fact, God showed favor upon Daniel in those most difficult circumstances. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why Daniel didn't give up. And here's the reason why you and I shouldn't give up today and not get discouraged. So don't get discouraged. Some of you are discouraged right now. I'm going to tell you, don't get discouraged because God has a plan and God will always be faithful to his plan. And so Daniel understood God's plan. Daniel understood the prophecies of the prophet Jeremiah, that God was doing something behind the scenes and that God uh, ultimately would receive the glory and that God would actually work through Daniel. I know it's discouraging as we look at, 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 you know, at the scene around us right now, but I believe if we can understand God's plan, And if we can understand the heart that God desires to give us to live within the society, I believe not only can we thrive, but God can give us favor and that God will ultimately receive the glory through how we live our lives and the fact of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why I believe Daniel is such a good example uh, for us. What I want to do is I want to jump into Daniel chapter four this morning. And what's interesting about Daniel chapter four, you're going to see a contrast between the heart of Daniel and the way he lived before God and recognized God over him and the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was over Babylon at the time, most powerful king in the world at this time, most powerful nation in the world at this time. And we're going to juxtapose the difference between um, Daniel and the way he lived before God and the heart of of Nebuchadnezzar. So if you've got your Bibles, you can look at the screens or you can take the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. I'm going to look at, jump right into the word this morning. What I want to do is I want to look at Daniel chapter four. I want to start with verse 24. We're going to look through verse 
37. And, and let me just tell you what's, what's going on in this, in this um, chapter. Um, God has gifted Daniel to interpret dreams. Now, this is a big deal. That This was a sign when you're able to interpret dreams in that culture, it was, it was very symbolic. Like, what is this dream saying to me? And, and Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that's disturbing. And none of his smart people, his magicians, uh, uh, the people that he would turn to could, could interpret this dream. But, but God has gifted Daniel to interpret this dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees this as something that could be very much divine. And so Daniel is able to in, interpret this dream. And so what happens is, I want to read, and we'll, we'll jump into the whole chapter, but I want to concentrate on verse uh, 24, because here's the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gives to the king. And so here we see Daniel living in this court. He's raised up to this high place, this, this prominent place within the king's court because God has shown favor amongst Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because, because they're, they're astute men and God showed favor upon them and they're able to interpret dreams. And so let's, look at, let, let's see what the word of God says here. It says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. Now this is what he says. You will be driven away from people... And you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. If you want to remain in the king's court, that's probably not a good way to interpret that dream. Right? So basically, he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, what the interpretation of this dream is that you just had is, God's going to show judgment upon you. And so let's, let's continue. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. God lifts up leaders and God will take them down. God is sovereign. Verse 26, the command to leave, the, command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Thank you very much. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your, wicked, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof. So he hears this, doesn't do anything about it. A year passes. He's on the roof of his palace. And look at verse 30. Here is what the king says to himself. Do you think he heeded the words of Daniel? Not right now he didn't. Okay, so let, let's check here. Verse 30, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Who is he giving the glory to? Himself. Verse 31. It says, The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from your people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass 
by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and give them to anyone he wishes. Verse 33, immediately, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails were like the claws of a bird. Here's verse 34. And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High God and honored and glorified him who, who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Everybody say amen. Verse 35, all the people of the earth are guarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the people of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time that my sanity was restored, the king speaking here, my honor and splendor were restored to me in the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to the throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exult and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Are you ready? Here's how the chapter finishes. And those who walk in pride, he is able to to humble. Lord, I just pray today that you would speak to our hearts. God, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And God, I pray that through your word today, we are humbled to realize that you are ultimately in control. And so God, help us to hear what you would have us here today as the church so that we can live in our society, not only live, but thrive in our society today, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. And everybody said... So here's the background. King Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't sleep. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 4, he's bothered by this dream. And, and if you could just understand Nebuchadnezzar, why is he bothered by this dream? Because Nebuchadnezzar has everything. Um, he's the most powerful man right now in the world, most powerful nation um, he has everything, and then all of a sudden, everything falls apart. And what happens here is the king basically loses his mind. He goes insane. He's driven from everybody. He lives like an animal. And then he comes back and gains his mind. And, and, and this is what is so amazing about this chapter is that once he regains his mind, he then thanks God for everything. And even for the situation that he was brought in. He knew something was with God. And that God ultimately was in control. And here's the problem with Nebuchadnezzar. When he had this dream, he's so bothered by it. And he knew there was something within him. He knew that there was some poison in his soul. Even though he had everything, there was something wrong with his soul that just bothered him. In fact, the word of God said it terrified him and he couldn't figure it out. So he went to the most wise people he could find in his kingdom and they couldn't answer it for him. But the person that could answer it for him was Daniel who heard from God and could interpret his dream. And so what, what, what was the one thing that tortured Nebuchadnezzar's soul? 
Here was the thing, because it wasn't that he didn't have anything. He had everything. It wasn't that he was worried about his enemies. He conquered his enemies. The one thing that tortured his soul was pride. That was the one thing that tortured his soul was pride. 1991, there was an interview with Arnold Palmer, great golfer. In fact, he just died in September at the age of 87. Um, He gives this story of being in the Masters Tournament. It was the final hole in 1961. He had a one-stroke lead and had just hit a very satisfying tee shot, and he felt like he was in pretty good shape to to win this with, with a stroke lead. And he says, as he recounts this uh, this time of his life in the in this 61 Masters, he says, as I approached the ball, I saw an old friend standing on the edge of the gallery and he motioned over me, hey, hey, Arnold, come on over here. And he came over and he, he, he stuck out his hand and he said, congratulations. And he said, the next thing I did was one of the biggest mistakes in my life. His friend stuck out his hand and said, congratulations, and I took his hand, and I shook it. He says, as soon as I did that, I knew I had lost my focus. And on my next two shots, I hit the ball into the sand trap, then put it over the edge of the green. I missed the putt and lost the master's. He says, you don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it. And it become and it became and I became determined that I would never do that again, and I haven't since thirty years after that event when he gave the interview in nineteen ninety one You see pride is something that every single one of us battle with it, it, it's it's our biggest blind spot i believe it, it's the one thing that other people can see that we can't see so many times because we are so self preserving in our lives we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to think that I am prideful or I think better of myself than I should. Pride is something that we battle with. We may not think about it, but it disguises itself in so many ways. Here's a definition of pride. The the dictionary defines pride this way. It's a feeling of deep pleasure or or a satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Now, that's not necessarily... A bad thing. Now, this definition is not, this is, you know, this is the dictionary. This is not a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements is not necessarily a bad thing. Taking pride in one's work, wanting something to be done right. It's good to want to do things the right way. But what I want to dive into today is the biblical definition of pride. And the biblical definition of pride gives us a little glimpse into the human heart. And what does the Bible say about pride? Because this is important so we can correctly expose it for what it is. And this was at the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. This is the reason why he couldn't sleep. This is the reason why he was terrified. Because pride was at the root of his heart. And pride, in a biblical definition, and what the Bible tells us, is that pride is the root of all sins. Let me give you a couple passages here both in the Old Testament and New Testament, to try to, um, to, try to reiterate this. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Not, not let the, the rich man boast in his riches. We kind of get a glimpse of what pride, a biblical pride is. And, and it's basically setting myself up. Um, um, glorifying in what I have done. David Rhodes gives a really good, good insight to pride here. He said, pride is the dandelion of the soul. Have you ever tried to pull, pull a dandelion out in your grass? You always get the head out, but that root goes so deep, doesn't it? And so for me, you know, I get the screwdriver out, you know, and really try to dig in there to get to the bottom of the root, because you know it's just going to grow back, and it's so true. Pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its roots go deep, and only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks, and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. And so let me, give you, let me give you two things here real quick about, about pride and, and looking at my heart so, so, so we can understand that, that, that we cannot elevate ourselves above God. And the moment we elevate ourselves above God or think that our works are greater than what God has done through us or that everything that God gives us is a gift, pride anchors itself into our hearts and our soul. So when my good works usurp God's work, Pride has taken over. So when my good work usurps, when I begin to look at my work and, and not thank God for what he has done through me, pride has taken over. And the second thing I want you to see there is, is the moment I steal the credit from God, pride has taken over. When I begin to take the credit and not glorify God for what he's done for me, pride has taken over. So I want to look at King Nebuchadnezzar and see exactly what happened. Because we will see the contrast between Daniel and the king. And Daniel understands who his king is. Daniel understands he is not the master of his destiny. He is not He-Man. Great cartoon. He-Man. Where he was the master of the universe. Right? And that's the way Nebuchadnezzar thinks. He thinks that he's He-Man. Right? I, I'm the master of the... I am, I'm on top. Right? Remember as, as, as a kid, you, you'd play King of the Hill? Right? Remember the, remember the old jungle gyms that were like 50 feet high when you were a kid? There were like disasters waiting to happen. And we used to have these, these, these jungle gyms, and, and, and one was like 10 feet high, and it was all made out of metal. I remember hitting my head on it. We were trying to throw kids off it. It was just, you know, recess was recess when I was a kid, man. I'm telling you, dodgeball, we didn't use these little soft things. When you got hit with a dodgeball, you got knocked out. You knew that, okay, you're done. You're out of the game now, right? And especially the little dodge. The little ones, remember those? You were just, it was like every man for himself. You were just trying to stay alive. See, that's when Jim was fun. No, I'm just teasing. Okay. Um, that explains a lot of things in my mind. I got hit with too many small dodgeballs. Um, see, Daniel understood who his king was. Daniel understood that, that he was not the master of his destiny. Um, Daniel is, is humbled by the sovereignty of God that he's not ultimately in control. Now, now here's, here's where we juxtapose 
Nebuchadnezzar, because he thinks that he's ultimately in control, that he's the master of his, his, his destiny. But little did he know, and what he's going to learn, is that he was not as much in control as he thought he was. And as much as we think we are like Daniel, I would have to say we are much more prone to be like Nebuchadnezzar. And the moment you think you are not prone to spiritual pride, the fact is that is the first sign of spiritual pride. When you think that that could never happen to me, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't take glory in myself. I don't do this. Let's, let's be careful here. Because we fool ourselves by believing I'm good at what I do. That's not pride. That's just the truth. Right? And, and, and so pride can easily seep into our hearts and our lives. And if, if, if we're going to be influential in our culture, we must continually kill the sin of pride in our lives. That's something that we're going to constantly battle with the rest of our lives. And so what's the, what's the lesson that we can learn from this story? And I believe there's three takeaways from Nebuchadnezzar that we can learn and, and hopefully learn from this so that we can walk humbly before our God. Um, let's look at the result of a, of a prideful heart. And, and here's, what, here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Here, here was the result of a prideful heart. The first thing I want you to see that in the scriptures, we see in verse 4, if, 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 if you've If you've got your Bibles, you can look there, but let me read it to you. Nebuchadnezzar says this in verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me afraid. Look at the two there. I was at home, had the NFL package, Chilling out, watching the end. I, I had everything prosperous, contented, didn't need of anything. And all of a sudden I had a dream that caused me to be afraid. Now, here's what's interesting. It says, not only did it cause me to be afraid, but as I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed in my mind terrified me. Terrified me. And so he has this dream that, that makes him afraid so bad that it terrified him. And what did he have to be afraid of? Nothing. He was both content and prosperous, yet he was terrified by his dream. See, here's the problem with pride. Pride brings anxiety. Pride will bring anxiety. That's the problem. Here here Nebuchadnezzar thought that he had everything. He was content. He was prosperous. But because of his pride, it brought this anxiety. That there was this poison within his heart and he couldn't get over it. And he needed someone to interpret this dream for him. And no one could interpret it except for Daniel. None of, none of uh, uh, those enchanters, the Bible says, magicians, astrologers, diviners, they all came. I told my dream, verse 7, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream and he was able to interpret it for me. And so basically, here's, here's the dream. Here's the dream that terrified him. He has this dream of a, of a huge tree that basically touches the sky. And under this tree, 
are all the animals and they found they find shelter and the birds live in its branches and every living thing was taken care of under the canopy of this tree that touches the heavens. And then a messenger comes from heaven and it's called to cut down the tree. And the message of the dream is found in verse 17. And here's what verse 17 says. It says, the decision is announced by the messengers and the holy ones to declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. And so we see this tree. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the tree. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that under his care, everything is taken care of. And so the king gets Daniel and Daniel hears the dream. When Daniel hears the dream, it actually terrifies Daniel because he knows what it means for the king and it's not good news. And so Daniel doesn't come to the king and say, oh, finally, I can put this king in his place, right? I can take this king down. You know what? This humbles Daniel. He is terrified by it because he knows what it means for the king. Isn't that, isn't that a great insight into Daniel's heart? That he's not gloating? People, let's not gloat. Let's be real careful here. When we look into our society and when we begin to gloat over others' downfalls, there's something wrong with our heart. Let's be careful. And I know sometimes we're like, yes, finally, justice. Woo, right? Let's be careful. Because if I gloat over the downfall of others, something is wrong with my heart. And sin and pride has attached itself to my heart. Daniel doesn't gloat. In fact, Daniel's terrified because he's going to have to go to the king and tell him the truth. Now, Daniel doesn't skirt from the truth. But as he's sharing the truth, he's doing it with Humility at the sake of his life and his job and everything else. But he knows he has to speak the truth and he speaks the truth with humility. And so what Daniel says is, as we read in chapter four, Daniel says, listen, you're the tree that will be cut down. And Daniel actually pleads with the king. He actually pleads with him and he says to him, listen, listen, if if you repent from your sins and do what is right and be kind to the oppressed, your prosperity will continue. And what's so ironic about this is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar said that he was content and prosperous. He couldn't sleep. The anxiety of Nebuchadnezzar's experience was, was, was one of control. And so Nebuchadnezzar begins to realize that he's not as in control as he thought he was. And God being a merciful God that he was, He will send us reminders all the time in our lives that we're not as in control as we think we are. And so, so whether it's a dream like God gives Nebuchadnezzar or it's a situation we encounter, whether it's our health or job loss or death, these, I believe, are all wake-up calls that we are not ultimately in control. 
And so Daniel's humbled by this, and he gives the words that you're not ultimately in control, and you're going to be. Now, what's interesting about this, this dream is that God says, I'm not going to uproot the tree. I'm going to cut down the tree to its stump. I'm not going to destroy the tree. I'm just going to cut it down to its stump, meaning I'm not going to completely destroy you, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to humble you, but if you, if you return and you acknowledge, I can restore. Isn't that the great thing about God? That God is all about restoration, even, even in the bad decisions that we've made in our lives, God is so good that he, his ultimate goal for us is restoration and healing, not destruction. Right? And I know for all the decisions and the bad decisions that I've made in my life, I, I should be an object of destruction for God, that God should have just given up on me. But thank God that God is about renewal. He's about healing. He's about restoring our lives from the brokenness and the bad decisions that we have made. And this was God's heart for Nebuchadnezzar. This was Daniel's heart for Nebuchadnezzar. It's a great chapter here. So, so here's the thing. Pride brings anxiety. If, if you are fearful about the future and about control, it's a pride issue. Where God is saying, you've got to give me control. Give these things to me. It's okay to be organized. It's okay to think about how, how am I going to do the future and how are we going to plan. That, all those things are fine. But when I sit there and say that I'm ultimately in control or I don't leave the future up to God and say, God, listen, here's my plans for the day, but you have full authority in my life and I give you permission to mess it up any way that you want to. That's giving control to the Lord. Because so many times we are so in control of our lives that we forget, wait a minute, is God speaking to me? Does God want me to do something? Does God want me to do something different? I want to be sensitive to that. I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That I know ultimately that I'm recognizing that God, you're in control. Here's the second thing. Pride brings self-sufficiency. Did Nebuchadnezzar first heed Daniel's word? He didn't. Verse 29 tells us that 12 months later, the king was walking on his roof. He said, all this is mine. Great Babylon is mine. It's by my great power. This is done for my glory and my majesty. And so there's this self-sufficiency that he's done everything. And no sooner did these words come out of his mouth that, that when a voice came from heaven and said, everything will be taken from you, you become like the animals, eat grass like the cattle. This will continue over a year uh, uh, until you acknowledge the Most High. And we see this, we see this devastation that happens in his life. And then the scriptures tell us that immediately this very thing happened. And what happened to the king was this pride of self-sufficiency. The pride of self-sufficiency that says, I did it and with no one's help. The source of all good things is from me. I work harder than others. I'm more intelligent than others. The conclusion is I deserve this and I'm entitled to this very thing. And, and also pride it just disguises itself in my good life and what I've done. But also pride can also disguise itself in a hard life where we can say things, well, we look at our life and, and we think how much harder my life may be than others. I'm suffering more. And so the conclusion is I deserve this. In fact, that's just pride. And so pride says that I'm the author. I did this. And so we take the credit for what God has done. 
Have you ever taken the credit for, for something that you didn't really do? Someone said something to you and you're like, I totally didn't do that, but I like taking the credit, so I'm not going to say anything. Um, when I was in high school, I took two years of Italian. Don't ask me anything. I didn't remember a thing. Uh, but I took, because in our school, Italian was one of the languages that we could take. So I said, cool, I'll take, I'll take Italian. So the first day I walk into class and I'm surveying the class and I go, I go, I want to sit next to the smartest kid. So when I surveyed the class, I saw Aurelio was taking Italian. I knew Aurelio. Aurelio's parents were from Italy. And I knew that he spoke Italian at home. So I said, hey, Aurelio, come over and sit with me. So I sat next to Aurelio. And let me just say, thank God for Aurelio. Because we had a first-year teacher in I feel bad. We were terrible to her. I feel so bad for her. We were brutal, and she was young and didn't have good control of the class. We didn't learn a lot, and so it was a real struggle. So I really had to lean heavily on Aurelio, and so basically at midterms, we got this report card home. It says, Barden is doing just a fantastic job in my class. He said, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, because of Aurelio, right? Aurelio helps me with my homework. In fact, Aurelio does my homework. Right? Not proud of it. Okay, I've repented. Uh, ask God for forgiveness, right? Um, so, you know, it, it was all because Aurelio. Right? And, and I think sometimes when pride gets in our hearts, we, we want to take that credit because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel important. And so we've got to be very careful about this self-sufficiently. And then the third thing that we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life is, is eventually what pride does is it just brings destruction. It brings destruction. And so what happens to Nebuchadnezzar is he loses his mind. He basically becomes uh, like the animals. And, and what's interesting about Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar wanted to exalt himself above men. Like, I am, I am the best. I am the tree. Everything else comes from underneath me. I've, I provide everything for everybody else. This is, this is my majesty. He wanted to be above men. He, he placed himself above others. And what's interesting about his humility and the way he was humbled by the Lord is he became less than man. He actually became like one of the animals. He became insane. Scrounging around on the ground, letting his hair grow out, fingernails go long like an animal. He became insane. And so he became less than man because of his own pride. How far had he fallen from his position as king that God placed him in? And he becomes less than man. And so God showed Nebuchadnezzar what pride can do to you. And here's what pride causes us to be. And this is, this is where pride blinds us to reality and what God does. Two things here. Pride causes you to be unsympathetic. Even, even Daniel was sympathetic to the king, even though the king probably deserved everything he was getting. But Daniel was sympathetic and told him, if you do this and if you repent, you know, God will restore you. But here's the destruction that's going to come your way. He did it with a humble heart. Pride causes you to be unsympathetic, and pride causes you to be self-absorbed. 
See, here's what, here's what pride ultimately does. Pride causes us to be threatened. Pride causes us to be unhappy when someone else we know makes us feel less successful or less intelligent or less attractive. That's what pride does. It threatens us. We see something that someone else has and it's not as good as we have or we see them and they're left and then and then and we become threatened. Pride causes us to be unhappy. And so what eventually happened in Nebuchadnezzar? Well, through this, God did spare him. Because Nebuchadnezzar recognized what happened to him. And so much of our, our anxiety and our stress comes from pride. Have you ever been up late at night and maybe someone has slighted you? Maybe someone has, has done something against you. And all you can do is think about yourself. You know, I can't believe they did this, and how could they have treated me this way? And look at all the good that I do, and, and look at all the things that I've done, and, and look how I tried to help people, and I get treated this way, right? What is that? Pride, pride, pride. You see, the only, the only way to break pride in our hearts is to understand that we are owed nothing. That's how we break pride in our heart. We have to understand that we are owed nothing. This is how we break it. You see, God gives us everything. It's a gift that he gives us. And the only thing that I deserve is his judgment. We deserve judgment, yet at the very same time, we are more loved than we will ever know. This, this is, this is, this is the, 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 the dichotomy here. See, God's given us everything. Given us everything as a gift. And the only thing that we deserve is judgment. Yet God gives us the gift of his grace. And so at the, here's, here's the dichotomy. At the very same time, we are the object of God's wrath because of our own sin. But yet at the very same time, he gives us his grace and we're more loved than we would ever know. And he says, receive my grace and my love so that I can restore you. Humble yourself before me. And so in, in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven. Isn't it interesting that the dream, he is the tree and everything's under him. And now he's looking up and recognizing that God is over him. Instead of being hardened by what happened, he is humbled. Instead of seeing everything as his, he now sees it as a gift. And in the dream, God didn't uproot the tree. He cut it down to the stump. And here's the thing that I want you to see. Jesus comes as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He gave up everything to serve us. He chose to humble himself to reach us. Pride makes us more than who we are. Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up, but he was humbled. And this is what I love about Isaiah 52, 14, because it explains about the suffering servant and what Jesus actually accomplished for us as he humbled himself before us. And then we're going we're gonna to dive into communion and take communion as the body of Christ. Here's what you, here, here's, here is, here's the picture of Jesus for us and what he did for us. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords leaving his place in heaven to come down to our messiness and to our yuckiness to serve us. And here's what Isaiah the prophet says some 700 years before Jesus walks on this earth. He says, just as there were many 
who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus came, was beaten beyond recognition for us, came to die for our sin of pride. And then the scriptures say that God lifted him up and he now sits at the right hand of the father. See, the test to see if we're walking in humility is this. Are we serving those who do not deserve to be served? How do we serve those that, that don't agree with us? Is, 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 is the default of my heart to see when someone else falls, it, 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 does it make me feel good? Is there satisfaction in my heart when I, when I see the downfall of someone else? You see, the world will never be won over to the lordship of Jesus Christ by boycotting it. Can I say that again? The world will never be won over to the lordship of Jesus Christ if we simply say we're going to boycott you. Can I just say this? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. And I have to get to the point in my, my heart, my life, God, how am I serving? How am I humbling myself before you? Am I truly praying for people and the lostness of their heart? Judgment should not make us feel happy. In fact, judgment is the way that God brings people back to him. It should break our hearts. To see the lostness of our, of our country and the sin and, 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 and the moral depravity that people go through because they choose something they think is going to make them feel better. We've all been there. We all do it. We all make that mistake. Yet God in his mercy and grace sends his son beyond disfigurement. We couldn't even recognize him to die in our place for that very sin. God pours out his judgment and his wrath upon his son Jesus upon the cross so that you and I could find life and forgiveness. That's got to be in the crux of my heart and the way I look at our world today. We have to pray for people. People are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. Who is Satan? He's the enemy. But people aren't. For God so loved the world. God loves people. And people can drive us nuts. Right? But God loves people. And I got to pray. And I know I may not agree with them. They may drive me nuts. They may not share the same values as me. But you know what? I got to pray. And say, God, only you can, you can change. And God, if judgment has to come, to turn people's hearts. Do you realize in the book of Revelation that when God brings his judgment, it's not just to bring his judgment, it's to bring people's hearts back to him. And there are going to be some that hearts are so hardened that they would rather have the rocks fall on top of them than turn to God in repentance. That breaks my heart every single time I hear that verse because I know it breaks the heart of God. I've done all this for you. I've given everything for you, but yet you refuse because of the hardness of your heart. The last verse of chapter 4 says this. And all who walk in pride 
he is able to humble. And so I have to ask myself, is there an area of pride in my life that needs to die at the foot of the cross? Is there an area in my life? Is there a, a is there a root of bitterness in my life? Is there hate towards someone else? Is there something in my heart that, that has anchored itself, that is pride, that is not of God, that God needs to change? Listen, before we take communion today and we recognize what Jesus Christ did for us, the Apostle Paul says that we should examine our hearts before we do this. And if there's anything in my heart that has elevated itself above God, that I've placed myself up above other people, or I've put myself in a position where I'm looking down at other people, or I'm wishing judgment on other people without saying, God, I know your judgment is going to come, but this should break my heart. Then let's get that right. And when you find yourself getting angry and getting frustrated and getting mad, please turn off the TV set. <laughs> Just do it for me, okay? And turn your heart back to God and say, God, show me how you want me to pray. Show me how you want me to pray. And God says, humble yourself before me. Just humble you. Just, I'm in control. I've got my plan. I'm working it out. So God, if there's anything in my heart, if there's any pride in my heart, Lord, let's, let's lay that down before you. Cleanse us anew and afresh today. This is why Jesus came. This is why we celebrate communion. We're celebrating what Christ has done for us, that he's provided everything for us through his atonement, through his sacrifice on the cross, that we recognize his body that was beaten for us, his blood that was given for us, that cleanses us from our sin, especially the sin of pride. So let's do that today as we pray. Would you pray with me as the ushers come and as they serve you? And let's get our hearts right. And let me just say, communion is open to any of you who uh, are followers of Jesus, so you're more than welcome to communion. If you need to let communion pass by you today, listen, that's fine. It's between you and the Lord. But we'll take communion together at the end as the family of God, as the worship team leads us in worship. And so let's pray together. Lord, we just come before you today. We thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus. God, I pray that you would break our hearts of, of pride and things that we've elevated above you. Thank you for your patience in our life. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, that you humbled yourself, that you took on the role of a servant for us, and that the example for a follower of Jesus is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That you've called us to serve and to pray God, break our hearts. We know that your judgment is coming and that you judge those that will lift themselves up, but that should not, that should not be a thing that I glory in. That should be a thing that breaks my heart. But Lord, we thank you that you use that to bring people back to you, God. So humble our country, God. Humble us before you. Let us recognize that we need you, that you provided everything for us, that the problem with our country is not education, it's not the economy, it's sin. We've walked away from you, God. We've turned our own ways. We're, we're turning to our own knowledge and our own understanding. We're elevating ourselves above you, God, and we see the destruction. And that should break our hearts, God. So humble us as we pray for our country. 
And God, I just pray that you would deal with our hearts today as, as we just allow you to examine our hearts, God. If there's anything that has anchored itself in our hearts, we ask that you would take care of that. And we give it to you. We thank you for your forgiveness and the blood that covers that. Thank you for your patience with us in our lives. So as we, as we take communion today, we celebrate what you've done for us, Jesus. Thank you for taking on the wrath of God for us. We love you, we praise you, and we ask these things. In Jesus' precious name, in Jesus' precious name, amen, amen, amen. Worship with the-